The title of, of this morning's message is, is Unashamed. You know, for, for as long as Christianity has existed, for as long as the gospel has been known, there has been a temptation for believers to abandon the gospel. There has been a temptation to compromise the message. There has been a temptation to water it down in order to please a listening world that's just hostile to the message that we proclaim. And for as long as Christianity has existed, for as long as the gospel has been known, there's been a need for ordinary Christians like you and like me to stake our flag in the ground and believe and declare the gospel unashamed, no matter what life throws at us. You know, Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16. Many of you know it. He says, For I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. He says, I am unashamed. We've seen that in the ministry of Paul. We'll see that in the book of Galatians, that in everything that he has done and everything that he has said, there is one thing that you can say about this man with the utmost certainty, that he is unashamed of the gospel. He records it in Romans 1.16 to give us a similar call, to be unashamed of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon echoed the words of Paul in a little bit different way when Charles Spurgeon says that when we preach Christ crucified, we have no reason to stammer or stutter or hesitate or apologize. There is nothing in the gospel of which we have any cause to be ashamed. And yet, brothers and sisters... If we are honest, at the very least, we are tempted to be ashamed of the gospel, which leads us to silence on our part when opportunities come where we could speak and declare the truth of the gospel. At the very least, we're tempted to remain silent. And at its worst, we are tempted to abandon the truth altogether in the midst of a world that just sees us as absolutely foolish. And for the church in Galatia, as we have, the churches in Galatia, as we have seen and we will continue to see, the latter has happened in their lives. They have completely abandoned the message of grace. They have abandoned the teaching of the gospel that Paul had entrusted to them. And they have attempted to find real satisfaction in a message of salvation by works. And even more than that, they had begun to question the very person who proclaimed the gospel to them in the first place. They have bought into the lies of those who are leading them astray that Paul is not preaching the gospel to them, that Paul is not a real apostle, and that Paul has led them astray. They have argued that Paul is just trying to make a name for himself by preaching, listen, this man-made gospel that holds no real weight, and they've bought in. You see, the tactic that the Judaizers used with great effectiveness, and we, we mentioned this in the first sermon in the series, was they knew that if they could attack the credibility of the messenger, then they didn't even have to deal with the message. Because if they could attack the credibility of the messenger, then anything that he says is void. And it's not true. And the churches in Galatia had bought into this lie. 
See, what they have said is that, listen, what Paul has done, they argued, is he's basically watered down the real message of Scripture to make it easier for the Gentiles. You see, Paul just loves these Gentiles so much that he's willing to compromise and water down the truth of Scripture so that they can come to faith, right? Because if they don't have to keep the law, then they don't have to worry about the Mosaic law, and they can just come and be a part of this. But, but really, all Paul's doing is twisting the truth of Scripture, and, and he knows deep down that salvation comes by keeping the law and the churches are buying in but Paul being the spiritual father of these churches responds to these claims and he says this beginning in chapter 1 verse 10 he says for I am for am I now trying to persuade people or God or am I striving to please People, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached to me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas, and that's Peter. And I stayed with him 15 days, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I declare in the sight of God, I am not lying in what I write to you. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean church. Uh, churches that are in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith. The faith that he once tried to destroy and they glorify God because of me. You see, what Paul is doing in this is he is, he is refuting this idea that the message he proclaimed is, is, is a means of making much of himself. He's refuting the claims that the message that he has taught is simply man-made easy believism. He is refuting the claims that he has brought them a false Gospel And ultimately, listen to this, what Paul is doing is he is declaring that he is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is unashamed of the gospel that he has preached to them. And he gives them three reasons why. He tells them why he is unashamed of the gospel and why he knows that the gospel that he proclaims to them is the real gospel. That it is legitimate, that it is from God. And what I hope we glean from this morning is, is as we look at these three reasons why Paul is unashamed and why he refuses to back down, he's giving three reasons as to why he knows that this gospel message is the true gospel and he is unashamed of it. And I hope that as we look at these three reasons, we too would begin to 
to see why there is no need for us to be ashamed of the gospel. There is no need for us to be ashamed of the gospel. So here's the first reason that he gives as to why he is unashamed of the gospel. The first reason that he is unashamed of the gospel is because he fears God more than he fears man. Now we talked a little bit about verse 10 at the end of last week's sermon, but I want to look at it again. So there in verse 10 he says, For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Another way of translating that statement is, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He goes on and says, Or am I striving to please People, if I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you remember back to last week, we began discussing this verse and we noted that the fear of man or being a people pleaser means that we care more, we fear more the, the perception of people rather than God. We care a whole lot more about what, what people think than what God thinks if we have the fear of man, if we are people pleasers. But we noted three reasons why people pleasers don't make good servants of Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of them. We noted that people pleasers don't make good servants of Jesus Christ because people pleasers cave under pressure from influential people. We noted that people pleasers will ignore harmful hypocrisy. And we noted that people pleasers will hide from the shame of the cross. And as we move through Galatians, even beginning next week, we will see Paul being tempted to give in to all three of these areas. These three things are going to come up. You remember when I, when I preached this first sermon, I said probably more than any book we've preached so far, the book of Galatians is just constantly building on top of itself. So a lot of ideas, a lot of themes are going to be reiterated, but what we will see is those three areas, right? The temptation to, to cave under pressure from influential people, the temptation to ignore harmful hypocrisy, the temptation to hide from the shame of the cross, ultimately the temptation to give in to the fear of man, Paul will face all three of these areas and he will explain in the book of Galatians how by the power of God and because of the grace of God he was able to stand firm and he cares more about what God thinks than what people think. But Paul reiterates to them and I want you to hear it clearly that at the end of the day, as he preached this gospel to them, as he has preached the gospel to countless others, he isn't seeking the approval of men as he declares the gospel. Rather, he is seeking the approval of God. And notice this, that Paul knowingly pits them against one another. Because Paul knows that if we are going to please God, we have to be okay with not pleasing the world. And I, and I want you to listen to me very carefully. And, and, I, and I say this because I, I want to spur you on, church. I'm, I'm trying to, to spur us on to faithfulness. This mindset that, that we have to be okay with not pleasing people if we are going to make much of the gospel, it is so important to us if we are actually going to be unashamed. I want you to hear me say this as plainly as I can so that there is no confusion moving forward, that there is no confusion in your understanding, just as plain as I can give it to you. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have the approval of this world and the approval of God. It is impossible. 
And this is because when we are unashamed of the gospel and we are proclaiming the gospel with boldness, the very truth of the gospel stands in stark contrast to the ways of this world. Jesus said in John 3.20 that for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And he does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. You see, we are preaching a message of the gospel that tells people that love their wicked ways that their wicked ways are going to send them straight to hell. But people love their wicked ways. They want to stay in their wicked ways and they want their wicked ways to be seen as good and we just can't agree. And we clash with this world, right? And those that are in darkness don't want the light. I think sometimes we think that if we just live a really good Christian life, that lost people are just going to want to come to us and want to hear the message of the gospel that we have. And they're just going to love us and cherish us and think that we're the best thing since sliced bread. But the reality of it is that the message that we proclaim, the truth that we hold to, will inevitably put us at odds with the world. Again, if you remember back to last week, I told you as clear as I could that if you are not facing hardship and persecution and trial and struggle in this life as you stand firm on the gospel, you are doing the Christian life wrong. Because our way and our message and the truth that we have been entrusted with It stands in stark contrast to the world. We cannot have it both ways. And scripture is is explicitly clear on this. Jesus notes this very thing when he says in John 15, verses 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. But listen to this. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. James 4.4, James says, you adulterous people. It's a good starting point. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That means strife, hostility, separation. Therefore, whoever wishes, listen to this, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, Paul pits them against one another because Paul knows that they can't exist in the same arena. God himself communicates to us that if you even want to be friends with this world, God sees you as an enemy. We cannot have it both ways. We will either fear God or fear man and and know that one leads to life, but the other leads to death. Jesus says in Luke 9, 26, that for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of God be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That is a terrifying verse. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That's sobering, isn't it? The old Anglican Archbishop, John John Tillotson, he said it like this. He said, we have no cause to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But the gospel of Christ may justly be ashamed of us. And church, I pray that that is never the case for us. 
I pray that we develop a genuine fear of the Lord that is so much more prevalent than any fear of man could ever be. Jesus warns us in Matthew 10, 28 and says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, if that's the case, there's some interesting things that we can draw from that. And I know this might sound somewhat counterproductive, but it actually is an interesting thing when we dive into this truth that what really matters is God's perception and nothing else. Because what that reminds us of is that our primary motivation for proclaiming the gospel unashamedly is not so that people will like us. Our primary motivation, listen to this, for proclaiming the gospel unashamedly is not so that people would be saved. Our primary motivation for proclaiming the gospel unashamedly is so that God would be pleased. Now, we want to see people come to know Jesus. Don't hear me saying we don't. I pray for that daily, that, that, that people would come to know Jesus. But we have to understand that if we genuinely fear the Lord and we want to make much of him and we think that his perception is all that matters, then our primary motivation for even sharing the gospel unashamedly is not so that people would come to know the Lord. Our primary motivation is that God would be pleased with us because his perception matters more than anything. And I don't want my God to ever be ashamed of me. But the beautiful thing is that when we fear God, we will be blessed. Malachi 4.2 tells us, but for you who fear my name, I just love this picture. It says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully leap like calves from their stall. What a picture of blessing when we fear the Lord. That we will have good things before us. That God will provide for us. That he will restore us. That he will keep us. And that one day we will leap like the calves leaving their stalls. But Paul goes on in this text and he doubles down on this claim that he is not preaching the gospel to please people. Because he writes there at the end of verse 10, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying this, listen, if I really wanted to please people, I know how to do that. That's what he's saying. If I wanted to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus. We see that even in what he says in verses 13 and 14 where he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And look at verse 15. He says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers or my ancestors. Paul is, Paul is saying, he's like, if I wanted to please people, I know how to do that. I'd go back to Judaism because I was killing the Judaism game. Like, people loved me. I was better than most. I mean, they looked at me as I was the cream of the crop. People loved me. He says, if I wanted to please people, I wouldn't serve Jesus. He almost gives this tone as if we're kind of stupid to think it any other way. I can see kind of this hint of like, well, what do you mean? Like, 
If I wanted to please people, I wouldn't be doing this whole Christian thing. That brings hardship. That being, brings struggle. We'll see a little bit later. Paul says, I mean, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. It hurts to follow Jesus. But what Paul says is, I fear God more than I fear man. So I am unashamed of the gospel. You see this message that, that Paul has staked his life on is because he cares more about God than man. But he goes on, and here's the, the second reason that, that he says. He says, listen, not only am I unashamed of the gospel because I fear God more than I fear man, but he says, I am unashamed of the gospel that I have preached to you because the gospel is God's. It's God's. It's God's message. It's God's declaration. It's God's truth. He says that this gospel that I proclaim to you, it's God's. Look there at verses 11 and 12. He says, for I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, and I, and I was not taught it, but it came by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Just a quick reminder, we remember Paul's conversion story, how he was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus himself showed up and said, why are you persecuting me? And Paul basically says, well, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And, and, and Jesus, Jesus himself gives him this revelation of the truth of the gospel, so much so that Paul's entire life is changed in that moment. Even his name changed. So, so Paul has a unique testimony. He's saying, you're saying that I'm preaching to you a human message that I receive from people. I'm in a unique position that I didn't even hear the gospel from human people. From what we know of scripture, right, we have to speak the gospel to people for them to come to know Jesus, right? Paul, I think, is one of the only ones who can say, not me. Jesus himself showed up after he had already ascended. He came back to, to make sure I knew because he had called me and he had set me apart in my mother's womb and he was going to make sure that he got his own. If you want, this is another sermon, but if you want a picture of the sovereignty of God, there it is. That God will get those whom he has called. It doesn't depend on us, but we want to be faithful. Amen. But, but Paul says, I mean, you're making a crazy claim because you might be able to make this claim with somebody else, but not me. I received the gospel from a direct revelation from Jesus. You see the message again that Paul has staked his life on, this message that Paul finds his hope in, this message that Paul proclaimed to them was not given to him by any man. It was not created by man. It, it is and has always been God's truth. And let me remind you that this message of the gospel that we have staked our lives on, this message of the gospel that we find our hope in, this message that we are called to proclaim to the nations is God's truth. It is his story from beginning to end. And, and when you think about that, it's just so true because when you think about the gospel and this narrative throughout scripture, no man, even on their best day, could have crafted such a beautiful, intricate story of grace and redemption like God. I mean, the entire Bible is God's story of redemption, and it has been God's from beginning to end. 
God has been the one who's been bringing it to fruition. The, the gospel has always been God's message. You remember, right, it was God who declared to Satan in the garden that I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. It was God who called Abraham and told him that through him and his offspring all the nations of the world would be blessed. It was God who told Abraham, listen, to overlook the son of inheritance, to look to the son of promise. It was God who then spared that very son when he sent a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. It was God who in Egypt delivered his people from slavery and brought them to freedom by sparing them from death through the shed blood of another. It was God who gave the law to show his people his unwavering righteousness and his need for a redeemer. And it was, and it is to God the psalmist sing their praises as the one who will deliver them from every snare and every sin. It was God who spoke to the prophets and declared a deliverance far beyond their mere physical circumstances. It was God who sent his son into the world to redeem it, to die on a cross that he crafted by his own hand. It was God who rose Jesus from the dead. And it is, it is by God's declaration that the church has been built on and commissioned with the gospel. And it is to God that all glory and honor is due. It has been God's message from beginning to end. It is not ours. And because the gospel is God's, he defines the story. Every word of this book is sprinkled with the redeeming blood of Jesus. And we proclaim it unashamed because he was never ashamed to declare it to us. Now make no mistake about this, though. God's truth is not always easy. Right? 1 Peter 2 speaks of it as a stumbling block. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of the offense of it. Ephesians 6 tells us that all the powers of hell rage against it. But the message is God's. And so we cling to it and we declare it, all of it, even the hard parts. And again, the, the gospel message is not always an easy message to proclaim. It's easy to us. Because it's life for us. But, but the entire message of the gospel is not easy to proclaim, but we proclaim it all. You see, remember, it's God who defined the story. So it's God who tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is God who communicates to us that we need to communicate the sin of others to them. And so we declare that every one of us has sinned. And what we mean by that is every one of us has essentially, either in our actions, in our motivations, or in our thoughts, declared that we don't really want God. We have rebelled against him. Every one of us. And the wages of that sin is death. And so we teach that, and we cannot be shy about that. The wages of sin is death. I just want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that if you communicate the gospel and hell is absent from your message, you are not preaching the gospel. You are not preaching it. Matt Chandler once, once said in a book, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he said in a book that I once read, whatever book that was, That if someone says they love you but refuse to declare the reality of hell to you, they care more about themselves than they do you. Now, I know that hell is not a friendly message, right? We, 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 we don't want to be labeled as like fire and brimstone people. 
we don't want to offend people with the reality of hell, but we have to come to reckon with the fact that our sin has offended a holy God and he is right to send people to hell. How, how are we going to tell someone they need to be saved from a place that we haven't told them that they're going? Hell is real and it is long and it hurts. And sin, our sin demands that we be sent there. And God is right to do it because he is righteous and he is holy. And, and that is not always an easy thing to proclaim, but we have to share it. But we don't stop there. We also declare that God has loved us in spite of our sin. And what God did was he sent his own son to, to come into this world and to live perfectly. And you hear me say it all the time as we should have lived, but we couldn't. We can't miss that, right? Jesus lived how we were expected to live. So by the very essence of his life, he deserved no death, no punishment, no torment because of sin. And yet he went to the cross and in our place condemned he stood. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That Christ died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He took our place and God poured out his anger and his hatred and his wrath on Jesus. And we tell people that Jesus endured that for you. And he died. And we put him in a, in a tomb and... and I've even noticed that for some people, some people just want to skimp on the resurrection, right? Well, some of the other stuff that people can buy, but the resurrection is just a little bit too far-fetched. So let me just leave that part out of my gospel presentation. But you know it as well as I do. If we leave Jesus in the grave, we're still condemned to hell. Right? He was crucified for our transgressions, but he was raised for our what? Justification. You're not justified if Jesus is in the tomb. And so we tell it to people because it's God's story and it's not ours. And God doesn't need us to soften the blows of the gospel. He says, just proclaim it and watch me do what I do. And so we proclaim that our God is not dead. He is alive. And he now sits at the right hand of God. And we call people to come to Jesus through faith and repentance. And just like hell, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that your gospel presentation is not complete unless you have called someone to respond. Now, we like this kind of like tactful, I'm not going to get in your face about it, so I'm just going to share the message and walk away and leave you to do with it as you want to do. But the picture in Scripture has always been one of, so what are you going to do with this? Because the Bible says that if you come in faith by banking all that you have on what Jesus has done for you and you repent of your sins, you agree with God that your way is screwed up and his way is right and you run after him and turn from your sin, you can be made right with God. What are you going to do with that? Perhaps we see so few conversions because we don't actually give people a chance to respond to the gospel. And so we live, leave them with this incredible message that they're ready to respond to, but we don't tell them how. So we preach the entirety of the gospel without shame because it's not ours, it's God's truth. And he has declared it to us and we bought in. And we declare it to others trusting that God will give them grace to buy in as well. And Paul reminds these churches that he has given them that which was entrusted to him. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I passed on to you as of most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. See, we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that, the, that God's truth of the gospel is not just something we cling to for our salvation, but it is a gift entrusted to us to be used. 
2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors of or for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't just cling to this gospel and hoard it, though it is our hope and we love it. We are also entrusted to do something with it. And we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul is unashamed of the gospel because he fears God more than man and because the gospel is God's truth. But he also gives us the flip side of that same coin. And here's the third reason he gives. He says that he is unashamed of the gospel because the gospel is not man-made. And this might seem somewhat redundant. Well, didn't we just talk about this? We said that it's God's truth. But he makes sure to emphasize, Paul makes sure to emphasize that not only is it God's truth, but it's not man-made. He says this in verse 11, for I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preached by me is not of human origin. Now, remember, one of the arguments against Paul was that he was preaching a man-made message, so it can't be valid. And if it was a man-made message, it wouldn't be valid. But Paul responds and says, this gospel, listen, it is not from man, and therefore it does not depend on man. And and church, I want us to get this because this is a significant reminder to us. Because it reminds us that the message we preach is not dependent on what anyone says other than God. Hear me when I say that the message we preach is not dependent on what anyone says other than God. This means that no man gets to define the message of the gospel. Because it did not originate with us and it is not ours to define as we want. God defines the gospel. In other words, we don't compromise. I mentioned this last week to you, but there is a temptation for each and every one of us to compromise the truth of God's word, to compromise the truth of the gospel even just a little bit, to remove the offense of the cross and make it a little bit more appealing to the world around us. There is a real temptation for us to do that. This is not just with the gospel. This is with any biblical truth. But we don't let man define the gospel. We don't let the world define biblical truth. And we have to stand on this because it is happening all around us. Just recently, even this, this week, I read a tweet by Kelly Brown Douglas. Kelly Brown Douglas is, the dean, is a dean and professor of theology at Union Seminary. If you know anything about Union, you, you know this isn't going to go well. But she stated that social justice is not extra. Social justice is the gospel. There's just one problem with that. She's wrong. Social justice is not the gospel. Now, you know me, you know I love social justice, I stand for it, I will fight for it, but it is because of the scope of the gospel. It is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that God reconciles people to him and one another through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel. Social justice is not the gospel. It is an implication of the gospel, but that is an example of an attempt of someone trying to define the gospel as they want to define the gospel, and the gospel is not social justice. 
It is an implication of the gospel, and we proclaim it, and we believe it as an implication of the gospel. You have heard me preach it from this stage, but you will never hear me say that the gospel, or that social justice is the gospel, because it's not. And this happens all around us, where people want to try to define the gospel as they see the gospel, because you know what? That gospel isn't that offensive to the lost world. They can buy into that. Oh, that's what this Jesus guy is all about? The gospel is really just social justice? Oh, yeah, I like social justice. I'm all for that. Well, that's not the gospel. Again, it is an implication of the gospel. The gospel directs us in how we walk that out, but it is not the gospel. We don't get to make the gospel what we want. And we also don't get to make any biblical truth what we want. And, and I said this before, and just being transparent for you, that in a worldly sense, it would be so much easier if we could make God's truth what we wanted. Do you know how much easier it would be for us if we could bend on the issue of homosexuality? Honestly. Do you know how much easier it would be for us in this world? We wouldn't be seen as bigoted. We wouldn't be seen as hateful. We wouldn't be seen as archaic and outdated. But we wouldn't be faithful because God gets to define biblical truth. The gospel is not man-made. The Bible is not man-made. Do you know how much easier it would be if we could bend a little bit on our stance of inclusivism? Saying that, man, Jesus isn't really the only way. Like, we think he's the only way, but you can do what's best for you and we'll all end up in heaven at the end of this. It would be easier for us if we could just buy into that, but it wouldn't be faithful. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We are tempted at every turn to compromise truth because it is easier. But the gospel and the word of God is not man-made. It's not ours to define, and it's not ours to make it what we want. So Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, knowing that it is from God, it is God's truth, and it is not dependent on man. And so Paul gives these three reasons as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel, because he cares more about what God thinks than what people think. He is not ashamed of this gospel because he knows that it's God's truth, it's God's message, it's God's declaration, it's God's word. And he is not ashamed of this gospel because he knows it's not man-made, and so it doesn't need man's approval. But before we conclude, I want to point something out that's just fascinating that Paul does here. And I think we can miss it sometimes, right? Because the first time I read his story of what happened after he believed, I was kind of like, well, that's neat. I don't really know what I'm going to do with that in a sermon. Like, Paul's just kind of telling us where he traveled and who he visited. Like, honestly, I was like, who cares? But apparently God did enough to put it in here for us. And the more I started looking, I was like, oh, what Paul's doing is amazing. Because listen, after he makes these claims about not being ashamed of the gospel, after he makes these claims about fearing God and not people, and this being God's word and not, man, not man's word, and, and he, he speaks of the divine nature of the gospel, he, he defends the gospel. But he doesn't defend it how we might think he should, right? He does not immediately go into a theological discourse, though he's going to go into a theological discourse, stay tuned. But it's not his first step. He doesn't try to give some intense, logical, rational argument or this moral argument for why God exists and why the gospel is what it is. Instead, he does something so simple yet so profound. 
He shares his testimony. Some of you, if you've gone through the, the members class or the baptism class, we ask you to write your testimony. We always say that a good testimony should have three things. You know we didn't make it up, right? It came from Scripture. It should talk about what our life was like before Christ, how we came to know Christ, and what life's been like since. Where we got that from is this passage of Scripture, because ta Paul talks about his life before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and what life has been like since Christ, and he uses that as his defense of the gospel. He shares his testimony. Look at what he does before Christ, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the tradition of my ancestors. And then in verses 15 and 16, he talks about how he came to know Christ. But when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I could preach him among the Gentiles, I did, did not immediately consult with anyone. And then he talks about what life has been like after Christ. In verse 17 through 24, he talks about the fact that he didn't immediately go to people, but, 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 that, but that he spent some time with Peter. He met, he met the, the brother of Jesus, and then he gets all the way down to the end, and he talks about how God has been working since then. Verse 23 says, They simply kept hearing, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. So he shows what he was like before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and what God has been doing in his life since then, that God has been using him to cause other saints to glorify him. And Paul shares his testimony, and here's the reason that this is so powerful, because everything Every one of us has a testimony. Therefore, every one of us has a defense of the gospel. Don't miss that. Your testimony is not a minor thing as you share your faith. It is a defense of the power of the gospel to save souls. Because it saved you. You see, we can't forget that though truth is 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 not based on our experience, we cannot neglect the fact that we have experienced truth. Do you know why I know the gospel is real? Because of what it has done in my own life. That is the greatest defense in my mind for the validity of the gospel. It might not be the greatest defense in the mind of others, but the greatest defense that I have is I can look at my life and see how God has saved me and is still saving me. One of the greatest gospel defenses that we have is our own stories of how the gospel changed our lives. It actually did what God said it would do. And brothers and sisters, we need to know our stories. Go home and write out your testimony. And it should include three things. What your life was like before Christ. How you came to know Christ and what God has been doing since then, and then you memorize that story that you should already know, and then you tell people what God's incredible grace has done in your life, and you share Jesus with them. And you make sure you actually share the gospel. Great place to do that is when you talk about how you came to know Christ, you, you share what it is you believed that, that, that saved you, but you share your story, because at the end of the day, who can argue with your story? It's your story. If you look at me and tell me that didn't happen in my life, I'm going to call you a fool because I know it happened in my life. I was there. I was there when God saved me. Believe it or not. You were there when God saved you. And you know what his power can do in your life. So when we hear passages like, I am unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believe, we should look first at our own lives and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I experienced that power. I can tell you my story. 
I know that God saves souls. And the beautiful thing is every one of our testimonies is different. I would also encourage you to learn the testimonies of your brothers and sisters around you because you know what? You don't have my testimony. And I don't have your testimony. And I might be sharing my faith with somebody who has your story. It's the same thing. And I can say, you know what? I've never experienced that. But you know, you know that, 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 that my brother Charles went through something and this is what God did in his life. This is what God saved him from. You know, you know I, don't, I don't have that story, but, but this is what God did in Amanda's life, right? And, and, and let me share with you her testimony, how God used it, because you see his power in that. We, we should want to know one another's testimonies to be able to share and, and experience, but also worship God that he is so good at saving people that he can save people that come from all sorts of messed up backgrounds. And then he can use us in all sorts of unique ways. Church, in our world, we need Christians who are unashamed of the gospel. In this church, we need to be unashamed of the gospel. Believing that this is God's truth, it is not ours, and it's not man-made so the world doesn't get to define it, but God does and he has. And we go to this world, and if we've got nothing else, we share our stories of how God has saved us. I don't know. And God can use that in incredible ways. But it begins with us staking our flag in the ground and saying we will go with boldness and we will not be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul was not ashamed.